No one has ever represented Colorado's 8th Congressional District because it's brand new, stretching from Denver's northern suburbs up past Greeley. Colorado voters will choose this new congressperson, and to help you decide, we invited the major party candidates in for job interviews. From CPR News, this is Who's Gonna Govern? Your chance to hear the candidates for Colorado's top elected offices in their own words. This time on the podcast, Dr. Yadira Caraveo. The Democrat is a pediatrician who currently serves in the state house. We spoke September 26th. Doctor, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Your parents came to Colorado from Mexico. Mm-hmm. All four of their children, uh, you included, graduated college. You went to CU for medical school. And you say all of that is a testament to the American dream. I wonder what aspects of your experience personally or professionally propelled you into politics. You know, I think for starters, it was the sense of community and helping people out that my parents always really, it wasn't even an act of teaching, right? Um, It was something that we saw them do as we were growing up. It was, uh, my parents' house was always where everybody landed uh, when they were coming through Colorado, and they were always helping people out. I think every single one of my uncles probably lived with us for some extended period of time when we were growing up. They still Um, live in that house, don't they? They still live in that house Uh in unincorporated Adams County, um, correct. So the sense that your parents instilled in you what, around service? is That was the seed being planted for political service, do you think? Well, service and education, um, really what they emphasized was that they had grown up in a tiny town that didn't even have a high school. They had a bike over to the next town to, to go to high school. And so it was um, both being that center for people, helping each other out the way that so many people had helped them, and that we were going to really advance ourselves through education. And so it was always about where are you going to go to college and what are you going to study, not are you going to college? And I think I took that seriously because mm-hmm. When I was three, we were living on the western slope at that point, um, following my dad around in a trailer as he went from construction site to construction site. Um, And so when I was three, I decided both that it was time for me to go to Head Start uh, and that I wanted to go to medical school. Um, I think maybe it was in a way living my mom's dream because she would have loved to have done that, but just never had the opportunity. So. And when did the idea of political service enter your mind? It really was not until after residency. Um, So I knew I always liked politics. Uh, When I was in medical school and I decided to be a pediatrician, I knew that a large part of that was going to be advocacy. Uh, We take that very seriously in pediatrics because children can't advocate for themselves. Um, Once I really started practicing in, in private practice, I got increasingly frustrated with all of the things that legislation touches and all of the different aspects that touch people's health that I couldn't do anything about. So I was talking to kids about underfunded schools and how different it was from when I was in school, how many services they couldn't provide even when kids had special needs. Or I was spending hours on the phone talking to health insurance companies or telling patients that this is the treatment I would prescribe to you, but you can't afford it. And so how are we going to maneuver that? As a state lawmaker, you have kept your medical practice going, adding weekend hours to see patients. Uh, But you know, Colorado has a citizen legislature Congress is such a different animal. Would you keep your practice? I don't think I would be able to. Apparently, there are actually very specific rules about who can keep up um, their practice or their job outside of Congress. I think that I would continue to keep my license and volunteer um, to do different medical uh, things, but not work full time. Mm. I really see this as a different way of taking care of my patients. CPR has spoken with voters across the state. And in the 8th Congressional District, 
Amanda Cohen of Brighton has this concern. Uh, It was a really windy day. The homelessness matter has gotten way out of control to me. And that's where I have to roll. It has nothing to do with the issues that they want to play with. It has to do with our people. I take that to mean that this is about people and not political games. Representative, there are no doubt many contributors to homelessness, the cost of housing, of course, among them. In Congress, how will you tackle, in general, the unsustainable cost of living? That's exactly one of the issues that propelled me to run, first for the state legislature and now for Congress. I completely agree with Amanda. This is about people. It's not about games. And, you know, I could have stayed in my clinic and been frustrated by all of these issues, but decided to take on uh, different roles to be able to tackle this. At the state legislature, I've really tried to work to um, deal with the housing crisis. This is something that we have particularly seen in this district, where when Denver became unaffordable, people could afford to go to Thornton, North Glen, Westman. Now that's unaffordable. And, you know, I know a nurse in my practice, she was only able to buy a house in Greeley. And now she commutes in over an hour every single day because that's the only place that was affordable for her. Greeley is also in the eighth. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've done a lot of work at the state legislature on my own bills that really focus on renters because so many people are unable to afford buying a home now to make sure that they weren't subject to exorbitant fees and that we were really looking at the eviction um, system, especially in the middle of the pandemic. I've supported a lot of the legislative efforts to look at affordable housing, making sure that we can build it in different areas and that we are funding it correctly. And in Congress, I would continue to really focus on that funding piece. So many voters in the 8th are unaffiliated. Talk to the people crushed by inflation who have no particular allegiance to the Democratic Party and may think this cycle, especially with Democrats in control, what we need is a change. Uh, It's fine that you've been working on this, Dr. Caraveo, but it's not better for us, they might say. Why keep Democrats in power, you know, in the U.S. House, which your race could help determine? So first of all, I think there's a difference between what we've been able to do at the state legislature. It has been controlled by Democrats, but there's only so much that we can do right at that state level. That's one of the reasons that I've decided to run for Congress. But I think it's really important to elevate people who have been fighting for these issues at a state level who have that experience when we are thinking about who should represent us at the congressional level. You know, I have um, fought to make sure that things are easier for working families in Colorado, but we're just one state out of 50, right? And one tiny piece of a a giant economy that has been dealing with inflationary issues that uh, you could attribute to a whole host of things. But I think it's really important to raise up people who, who are like you, who have that working class background, who have seen the struggle um, of families like I have in every single clinic interaction that I've had. But I think uh, that, that someone might look at Colorado's, uh, just the cost of things here, and say Democrats have not been successful in this. Well, you know, I think that we can see this in a whole host of different pieces of legislation that we've passed. We have made sure to lower taxes for working families by closing loopholes on corporations and those who were not paying their fair share. We extended um, our version of the child tax credit, which Congress has failed to do at the national level, right? It was a temporary program that brought a lot of the children that I see in clinic out of poverty, a 50% reduction in child poverty that then political games were played with and was not continued at the federal level. But we did continue it 
at, at the state level. And even with the Tabor refunds, when uh, we saw that people were hurting um, with inflation, were having to pay a lot of extra money for basic needs, instead of delaying that for when everybody filed their taxes, we made sure first to change the fee schedule so that the people that need the money the most are the ones that are benefiting the most from these refunds, uh, and that we were giving it out at a time when people really needed money in their pockets. Meanwhile, Democrats were going to raise the gas tax, and then they said, oh, you know what, let's put a hold on that. Uh, And there's that new fee for uh, delivered items. So, you know, it's a mixed picture, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that with legislation, there's all sorts of things that that we have to balance. And we've seen that the economy has changed from the time when those pieces of legislation were voted on. And that's why there's been a delay in so many of those fees, um, because we know that families are struggling. The the gas tax. The delivery tax still went into effect. Right. Um, And so, um, you know, I think that that is something that we continue to analyze and make sure that our legislation isn't hurting working families while we're making sure to provide for things like infrastructure. Which is what that uh, delivery fee pays for, uh, the notion of what the impact is on those roads. Right. Mm -hmm. To the core, then, of the concern there from Amanda Cohen, which is homelessness, no doubt you've seen folks experiencing homelessness. As someone who holds a leadership position in the state, what goes through your mind when you see one of these many encampments? You know, I go back to the families that I saw in clinic. That was one of the things that was frustrating me when I was a doctor is um, I had a few different families who were talking to me about homelessness and that they were living in their car or they were living in a motel. And it was frustrating as a doctor not to be able to provide them with any service other than saying, well, here's a list of shelters and different programs that might be of assistance. And hopefully I see you again in three months when it's time for your kiddo's next checkup. As a legislator, I took a a lot of that energy um, and that empathy uh, for my patients and have applied it to make sure that we're trying to fund programs that will help end homelessness, um, in particular around housing issues, because so much of that is at the root cause um, in Colorado, but also around mental health issues, substance abuse issues, by um, making sure that we're funding those programs as well and, you know, ensuring that we're covering all of the different aspects uh, that affect people's health, people's ability to, to house themselves and really get at the root causes of homelessness. And so once again, I hear you saying, I've made investments towards those, and yet it seems that those problems are as intractable as ever. Yes, and it's because it's a big, complicated issue that I think um, at the legislature, um, in particular, we have to work piecemeal on, um, especially with the fact that we are part-time and we have four months to cover the 600 bills that we're trying to cover for Colorado. And then, like I said, we're one part of you know 50 states, right, that the federal government has um, so much control over. And so that's precisely why I'm trying to take some of this experience onto the federal level, where every decision has so much of a bigger impact. Would you have voted for the inflation Reduction Act, which did a whole host of things from green energy investment to prescription drug reform. Exactly. I would focus on the different pieces of that legislation that I think are remarkable in terms of um, their passage, in particular around health care costs. That's something that um, I've been working on a lot on at the state level. And so I think that the fact that we are finally allowing Medicare to negotiate prices um, on medications, that we have lowered the, the cost of insulin for at least the people who are on Medicare, it really should have been much more broad, right? Because I've seen patients who are having to ration their insulin um, because the cost just gets 
jacked up, even though it's the same drug that um, has been around for 100 years. The fact that we are finally focusing on climate change and making sure that we're um, investing in different kinds of energy that are going to lower the prices for uh, energy consumption for different families. I think all of those pieces of that legislation are great in particular for working families. Okay, so I take it that you would have voted for it had it come before you in Congress. Well, you know, it would depend on the circumstances and reading um, the bill at length if I had been there. But I think that those pieces in particular are things that I absolutely would have supported. Uh, How does your background as a physician, particularly a pediatrician, inform your view of abortion, which you want to keep legal? I think the biggest piece is recognizing how important it is to have that relationship between a doctor and a patient that is not interfered by by anyone else, not insurance companies, not drug companies, and certainly not the government. There needs to be the ability for a doctor to make a decision based purely on their medical training, on what is going on with that patient, and in consultation with their patient, rather than having a lawyer or a legislator kind of looming over them, impacting their medical decision. And so for you, is this about physician autonomy or patient autonomy? It's patient autonomy at the heart of it. That is something that is taken very seriously in medical training, right? We came from a system that used to be paternalistic in terms of um, of medical decisions, and we put decisions squarely in the hands of patients now. Every single medication that I discuss, every single treatment option that I discuss with families, it's in conjunction with a family and not something that I think anybody should interfere with. It should be a true conversation where ultimately the decision is on them. On 60 Minutes, President Biden said the pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. Uh, After criticism, he later added, it basically is not where it was. Was it responsible for him to say the pandemic is over? I mean, you know, I think he was coming from a place where the pandemic has changed. It is sadly going to be a part of our lives every winter in particular, just like the flu is, right? I got my COVID and my flu shots yesterday. And so I worry when uh, statements like that are made in terms of trying to make sure that people still take this seriously and realize that it is a a disease that's going to be around us, especially this winter, um, and that they need to continue their prevention efforts by vaccinating um, and getting boosters. Yes, the pandemic has shifted. But it is still here and we need to take it seriously and make sure that we're protecting ourselves. You don't believe it's over. I think that it's shifted. Do you hope Biden runs again? You know, I'm not really focused on that. I think that's two years away. The The world could be a very different place. We know, um, obviously, it, it's a different place than it was from two years ago. What I'm really focused on is this election and keeping in mind how incredibly important um, it is. You know, we could go from a Congress that is protecting your right to choose, that is really focusing on worker issues, to one that is going to institute a national abortion ban and, and go back to cutting taxes for the wealthy. I think that this election is so important that we should be really focused on this and um, not speculating on who's going to run for president. If abortion protections were so important to the Democratic Party, why didn't they pass legislation with the, you know, decades long looming possibility that Roe v. Wade would be struck down? Isn't this electoral convenience for the party? It's definitely not electoral convenience. You know, we're really reacting to what the new reality is of what the Supreme Court has done and stripping a right that women had for 50 years, stripping it away completely. But um, you and could so, have been proactive. Democrats yeah. mm-hmm. could have been proactive, no? 
Yeah, and I think that's discussions that we I know that we've had at the the state level. I would have loved to have done something uh, preemptively. Um, and to, and to be fair, Colorado did right. We saw what the decision was that was coming, and so we passed the uh, Reproductive Health Equity Act this last session before the Supreme Court decision really came out to make sure that in Colorado, uh, a woman's right to contraception and to carry a pregnancy or not are um, enshrined in statute. Earlier this year, we hopscotched the 8th Congressional District. Uh, We stopped in Thornton, Fort Lupton, Greeley. We also spoke to several Latino organizers in the district, which is Colorado's most Hispanic district. Um, And I won't forget these remarks from Michael Cortez of Claro, the Colorado Latino Leadership Advocacy and Research Organization. Traditionally, Latinos are assumed to be mostly Democratic, but The Democratic Party does not invest heavily at all in trying to get voter registration drives targeting Latinos. They wait until the election is too close and then spend too little money trying to register people. They treat other Democrats much better. What's your reaction to that? As a Latina, I know exactly what he is talking about. We are taken for granted, I think, a lot of the time. And the assumption is that we're going to be good Democratic voters and people come and talk to us every two to four years and then they forget about our issues um, in the interim. Is that happening this time in the 8th? It's not. I can tell you that it won't be with me as part of the community, um, somebody who grew up with immigrant parents, um, who has been part of the Latino community my entire life, whose first language is Spanish. This is a community that for me is integral, um, not somebody that not a group that I'm going to just come and talk to when it's convenient in terms of a, an election, but somebody, a, a group that I've been fighting for since my first election. When, when, for example, I noticed that as much as people want us to vote, the Tabor language and, and ballots was not accessible when it was written in English. And so I came across a lot of, of future constituents, voters at that time, who were really interested in voting, had gone through the process of naturalizing, wanted to vote, and they couldn't understand their ballot. And so that's why um, it took me three years, sadly, but I was able to pass a multilingual ballot access bill that is going to make sure that people can understand the ballot and vote in the language that they're most comfortable in. Uh, You make reference to Tabor there because when tax-related questions are on the ballot, there's this boilerplate language that says, shall taxes be increased to Mm -hmm. to a tune of such and such. That was befuddling to those uh, perhaps who were not as fluent in English as others. And that's what partly was a reason you wanted a multilingual ballot. Is that correct? Exactly. I I can tell you that as somebody um, who has been through college and has a doctorate, sometimes that language is confusing to me, and I speak English fluently. Um, I've been able to sit down with my parents and walk them through what uh, the ballot says. Not everybody has that, right? To the question of engagement, Dr. Caraveo, the 8th Congressional District also has some of the lowest voter registration numbers out of any congressional district in the state. Uh, So what, what kind of a challenge is that for a candidate? Not only who has to say, vote for me, but vote, you know? Well, and actually it starts with the redistricting process, right? A lot of people are are busy, right? They're out working two to three jobs. They're taking care of their kids. They didn't follow the redistricting processes as um, closely as as political nerds did. Um, And so the conversation really starts with, hey, did you know that you're in a brand new district, Um, first of all? Second of all, it's competitive. It's not just automatically going to be a Republican who is going to um, uh, represent you, especially in the area around Weld County. You have a real choice. And this is why uh, voting is important. Uh, and why I think I'm the best of the two candidates to represent you. That's an interesting thing. In other words, there are people 
in the 8th Congressional District who've been uh, drawn out of districts that were, you know, a shoo-in for Republicans. Part of your mission is to convince them this isn't like those last elections. There's a potential here that did not exist before. Is that what I hear you saying? Exactly. Okay. As a, being part of the fourth and, and honestly, people being part of the seventh where um, they were very safely in a Democratic district. Mm. It cuts both ways. Yes. Uh-huh. In 2019, you voted for a law that reduced penalties for possession of certain drugs, including fentanyl. Prosecutors and law enforcement objected at the time. Uh, then this past session, you voted to reinstate tougher penalties after fentanyl deaths skyrocketed. Was your 2019 vote irresponsible, given the deaths? You know, I think what we were doing at that time is looking at the context of many different substances and uh, making sure that we were looking at it holistically and how people needed um, access to treatment and prevention um, and not just uh, punitive measures. We reanalyzed, right, um, and saw that perhaps we needed a different approach with fentanyl in particular because it had reached Colorado by that time. We were seeing an increase uh, in deaths and overdose deaths, um, and we needed to make sure that we were holding people accountable for distributing this substance in our communities. And um, that's why I was very happy to vote to make sure that we're treating criminals as criminals and instituting stiffer penalties for fentanyl. Importantly, what that bill also did was look at the balance and the need for mental health resources and uh, substance abuse sources to both prevent the use of this substance um, and to treat the people who have fallen into this pattern of addiction. It's sadly something that I have seen in clinic with um, treating hundreds of babies who have been born addicted to substances seeing patients who have lost their parents or other loved ones. So I decided not to not to play political games like my opponent did with this um, last fentanyl bill and to make sure that we were um, not just importantly making sure that our communities are safer, but also making sure that we're keeping them safer by investing in programs that are really going to get to the root cause of the fentanyl crisis. Did that 2019 bill lead to deaths? I don't know. You know, I think that, you know, as a scientist, I, I would have to look at the um, literature around it, right, and see what that data is precisely. I know that that was a bipartisan bill, um, as was uh, the, the last bill that we passed to increase penalties. Um, and so it had a whole host of people who were supportive. Um, and the important thing is that we reanalyzed what the legislature did and made sure to fix some of those issues. What do you mean to say that your opponent is playing games with fentanyl? You don't you know, believe she's genuinely concerned about fentanyl deaths? I think that if she was, she would have, have voted to make sure that communities have the substance abuse and mental health treatments, you know, the funding in particular that would be put in place were are going to be put in place by this last bill. Instead, what she decided was that she would not vote for increased penalties because she was talking about the original bill and not making sure that she joined the legislature in fixing this problem. She did want the bill that came this past session to be stronger um, heeding, she says, the views of law enforcement. In the face of climate change, do you picture a day when oil and gas drilling is a thing of the past? You know, in, in a world where we have as much plastic use and a continued reliance on fossil fuels, I think that that day where we completely are, are not reliant on um, on extraction is probably far away, right? I think of that every single time that I use gloves in, in clinic or when we, you know, prepare our crash cart to make sure that we have intubation tubes um, in case a, a kid stops breathing. Those are all reliant on plastic that at this point, right, is reliant on the use of oil and gas. That does not mean that we should not invest 
interest in um, making sure that we move as as far away from that reliance as, as we can in order to make sure that we have clean air, that we are fostering a healthy environment for future generations, and really investing in renewable sources. Now, that is a 180 to some extent for your district, which is very oil and gas heavy. I wouldn't say it's a 180. I would say that it's a balance of looking at what our needs are and what the needs are going to be of future generations. I think we did that when we passed uh, Senate Bill 181, which I was part of, that really looked at the oil and gas industry in Colorado and said it's an important part of our economy. It provides a lot of jobs, but we also need to be looking at the health and safety of our communities. I can tell you that there are a lot of people in the 8th District who are also very concerned about, you know, fracking sites being right next to kids' schools or near hospitals. What I have been looking at in legislation, and I think what we have been doing in Colorado is looking at that balance. How do we keep these jobs, make sure that um, we continue to protect a part of our economy, but also make sure that we're keeping people safe and healthy? Aren't those at odds? I mean, in other words, how do you keep people safe and healthy in the face of climate change if you're also trying to maintain those jobs? It sounds like you're trying to have it both ways, I guess. No, I think it's realizing that as we move away from this um, industry, there are different ways to train future generations to make sure that we are creating more jobs in terms of renewable energy in Colorado as we slowly come off of what is an industry that we will be moving away from. Have you ever broken with your party on an issue? And if so, would you give us an example? You know, I think that I have pushed back on my party um, a lot, in particular on issues around health care. Give me an example of that. For example, the Colorado option, which um, the very first um, iteration of that bill this year would have really punished doctors for things that they can't control, for not being part of networks that health insurance companies really have an upper hand in when they're negotiating and would have really severely punished them by affecting their license. That was something that I pushed back against considerably uh, in the state legislature, knowing what the desired outcome was and, and that we had good networks to make sure that patients have access to the doctors that they want, but was looking at it in a way that would have been punitive to doctors and actually would have hurt their ability to take care of patients. The Colorado option is the notion that there be a state-backed, I suppose we could say, a health insurance option, uh, because in many parts of Colorado, there isn't really the competition to drive prices down. Exactly. Were Colorado Democrats wrong to help Republican election deniers in the primary, Dr. Carveo? You know, that's something that I really didn't have a hand in that happens outside of um, the uh, actual campaigns. I'm not asking Um, you as a decision maker. I'm asking you as a Democrat. I think that it's dangerous, right, Um, uh, to possibly push uh, for a candidate that really runs against uh, the basic tenets of our democracy um, to put them on a pedestal where they could win and then end up in Congress um, is uh, is a dangerous game. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure talking to you today. Dr. Yadira Caraveo is running for Congress in Colorado's new 8th Congressional District, stretching from Denver's northern suburbs to Greeley. Caraveo is a pediatrician and serves in the state legislature. Hear from her opponent, Republican Barbara Kirkmeyer, right now in another episode of Who's Gonna Govern? Thanks to producer Carla Jimenez and reporter Benta Berkland. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. Need more info to help you figure out how to vote? 
The ballot is a lot to get your mind around, with big offices up for grabs and 11 statewide questions about whether to cut the income tax, legalize psychedelic mushrooms in Colorado, and much more. CPR News is here to help. Read explainers for each ballot measure and learn about the candidates, including the one you just heard from, in the 2022 Voter's Guide, online now in English and Spanish. Go to CPR.org.